What is up, guys? Welcome to the Mini Enough Podcast. I am Andres. This is RB3. And this is the podcast where we talk about your favorite directors and the deeper meaning within their films. RB3, we're doing directors again, which is good. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we do. Oop, oop. Uh, and we decided to split this up because of one specific trilogy that they are most known for. And of course, I'm talking about the Wachowskis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are going to do a separate Matrix episode because we feel it is necessary uh, and time-consuming to do an entire Matrix episode, as we did with Sam Raimi, deservedly so. Yeah, and with Spider-Man. Christopher Nolan, too. We did the same thing. Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we think those worked out pretty well because those are the sacred trilogies that they have in their filmography, even though they've made other great movies. And we'll talk about those great movies in this episode today. So again, it'll be Bound, Cloud Atlas, Speed Racer, Jupiter Ascending. And and we'll talk a little bit about Sensei as well, because I've seen Sensei. Yeah. Um, and we can also- I, I saw it when it- I saw it when it first aired, by the way. Oh, I, I was going to say, I watched the first few episodes and say it. I'm not the most familiar with it, but I heard a lot of great things. Um, I guess another talking point that we can what we, we can touch on um, is uh, is V for Vendetta as well, because the Wachowskis wrote V for Vendetta. Oh, yeah, and of course. They've, some have said they might have even ghost directed a lot of it. Um, I'm not entirely sure of that, you know, but I just kind That's right. I've heard about that. Yeah, but I think that I think V for Vendetta actually does play into a lot of the themes that like the Matrix plays into, that Speed Racer, that Cloud Atlas plays into in general. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Um, I, I, I want to hear your introduction to the Wachowskis RB3. Is it the Matrix? Is that the first film you saw from them? Um, yeah, the Matrix. Uh, I saw the Matrix when I was young. Uh, I think a lot of people. Um, obviously the matrix is one of the most impactful movies of all time. So it's, you know, I think it just hit everybody's cultural zeitgeist, like immediately, even, even as a young, you know, kid, um, I remember, I re- I really remember seeing a lot of matrix references through like stuff like Shrek or like, I saw, I, I saw a lot of the parodies of matrix before I actually saw the matrix. Um, but that was kind of my overall introduction into, the world of the Rachowskis. Again, I didn't, you know, this is before I was like a big movie fan. So I didn't know particularly who these directors were, what did they do, what did they represent? I just knew the Matrix was a cool movie. Matrix Reloaded was kind of a cool movie, had some great action in it. Um, and then obviously, like when I was a kid, uh, I had a huge attachment to Speed Racer. I mean, Speed Racer was my movie as a child. I'm telling you, I I obsessed. I was like a, a Speed Racer sycophant because of how cool and, and a lot of people it's divisive a lot of people hate it now um i totally get it but i i still revel in how amazed i was by that movie too so absolutely i, I feel like the wachowskis uh, come with, with that brand of technology and the idea of pushing cinematic technology kind of cut off the same brand and style of like a james cameron a george lucas uh the style of using digital of enhancing visual effects, of using 3D, yeah. uh, stuff that, uh, uh, push, just, yeah, pushing the edge, yeah, pushing the pushing the edge, and just being inventive and groundbreaking and just everything. Absolutely, I feel like they're one of the directors that people look up to in that sense quite a bit. I mean, Robert Rodriguez is another example of that style, the Alita style uh, of making things grand and different and using visual effects to the 
to the most extent that you can use it inside a film and still make it comprehensive and allow audiences to understand what is going on within the film, um, which is actually a difficult thing to do. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think where the Wachowskis um, kind of differentiate between like somebody like a, a Cameron um, or George Lucas is that they're also very philosophical too. So like all their films have a very groundbreaking like kind of technological edge, but they're also um, introducing a lot of themes, a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts that, and a lot of philosophy that is pretty unique just all uh, across the board. And whether or not, you know, it's too much or too little, you know, the biggest criticism that they get is that they focus too much on ideas and not enough on characters and storytelling. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of goes back and forth. But to me, I've always found their movies incredibly fascinating, even the bad ones, even something like Jupiter Ascending, I, I find incredibly weird and out there and, and, and kooky and, and kind of interesting. Yeah, um, obviously, Jupiter Ascending is one of their films, but their first feature, RB3, is a 1996 film called Bound. Uh, and this, I actually think, and, and again, this is coming off someone who's not really super familiar with Bound, but I think this is a glimpse inside the Wachowskis as a whole and kind of the films that they want to make because Bound is a lot of things, but it also is kind of a love story uh, between two women, which is something that you don't really see during this time in movies, in cinema. And that, again, is a glimpse inside the ideas and thoughts and themes and messages that the Wachowskis want to send inside their movies. Uh, right off the bat, RB3, what is your familiarity, uh, familiarity with this film? Um, well, Bound, I watched it when I was in um, film school. Um, I Obviously, in film school, we focused a lot on um, movies that are like neo-noir and um, all of those kind of like um, thrillers. And this is like one of their debuts that kind of has the neo-noir style, the kind of post-realism style of noir matched with the modern, with, matched with the more progressive concept of like um, homosexuality or queerism and all of these different uh, themes that weren't tackled in old school noir films. And, you know, that, you know, that kind of opens up for us having a conversation about the Wachowskis in and of themselves. I mean, we've kind of been dancing around it, but the fact that they were initially brothers, um, but then one of them transitioned and then the other one transitioned. Um, and now they're both sisters they're si or siblings. Um, so they, they, uh, are both, they're really, you know, groundbreaking female filmmakers that were really telling a lot of these, uh, queer stories, uh, before they, it was even, it, it was even known to, to be that, uh, back in the nineties, when they were writing profile pieces on the Wachowskis, they were present them as like these two construction workers who were just nerdy film guys who really wanted to make this sci-fi movie called The Matrix. And I was even going on IMDb and reading some of the old reviews for Bound. And um, and I found it so fascinating because there was a review from like 1999, from like March of 1999, who was like, wow, these Wachowskis are really interesting. I, I'm excited to see what they're going to do next with The Matrix. And like having them having, that reviewer having no idea what was going to come next. But it just goes to show that, you know, they presented their talent through like the small budget indie 
quiet crime thriller romance kind of comedy thing and made it into and transitioned that into making this grand sci-fi epic trilogy that went on to change cinema. Um, but to go back to Bound, it's, it's interesting to see that LGBTQ representation from them so early on in their career, uh, particularly knowing how where, where they are now in their lives. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, it they were doing it way before it was a thing or even a term, I, I believe. Uh, just LGBT and, and the idea of this kind of films that you see nowadays and the idea of that kind of representation was was just really not there during the 90s, uh, at least as prominent during the 90s. I'm sure there's plenty of films, but not really quite as prominent as it is now. And the conversation around it isn't the same as it is now, uh, which is significant to say the least. Um, there's a lot of people, and, and again, there's many readings on many of their films. Uh, like you said, RB3, they're very philosophical. Um, and, and people have, I've heard many articles and readings about how in each and every one of their films, there is this kind of representation that they put there uh, of LGBT. And, and it's this idea of, of whether it's a small story of coming of age or it's a story of, of finding out who you are or discovering that you're something that you didn't know you were. Uh, that's kind of a theme throughout pretty much every single one of their films. And it's that idea that that's something that they put in each and every one of their movies on purpose, which I find to be fascinating because that's the kind of filmmakers that we like to talk about, the filmmakers that like, some, like to say something and want to say something in all their films. Uh, and that's what the Wachowskis are. So I, I, I'm just excited on that sense because... Again, we, we're not going to get into The Matrix, but I, I heard like a two-hour podcast about how The Matrix is just this, you know, coming of coming of age of, of discovering who you are. And I was just like, wow, I've never heard that take. Uh, and sure enough, it could be. Uh, there's so many readings on that movie and on that franchise that it's it's mind-blowing. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's, that's a prominent thing, just like um, many filmmakers want to uh, establish a narrative of class, Bang Jun Ho, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of of Latinos for for other filmmakers, or 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 Asians for other filmmakers, and they want to show the Asian culture and people growing up in America coming from Asia. They want to establish the Wachowskis this representation of their identity and their story, right. uh, and I find that to be absolutely fascinating and amazing for sure and i i think that's the big standout and bound yeah for sure and i think that's you know and again you know we talk a lot about uh it is a director's podcast when we talk about a lot of like first features it's always that kind of like low budget kind of um very intimate um filmmaking that really propels the greats to greatness um and this is a prime example of that i i've read a lot of stories about how extensively you know as as you can see in like the matrix and all the other films, how extensively and deeply they think about their planning, their execution, their themes, their ideas. And this is something they went really in for. I, I believe uh, they even hired um, like a, a, a sex consultant to help choreograph like the sex scenes in this movie, because they didn't want it to be flashy or overly cinematic, but they wanted it to be like realistic um, and, and subtle and, and everything like that too. And then, um, but meanwhile, they made the noir aspects very noir-ish too, even to the point where Bill Pope 
um, the cinematographer um, who also works with Sam Raimi a lot, he said that they uh, that they were inspired a lot by like graphic novels and like the Sin City um, Frank Miller um, graphic novels in particular. So it has a lot of those like noir elements that I I come to love. I mean, as you know, as many of the listeners know, noir is my favorite um, genre. Um, so having like that uh, LGBTQ uh, representation mixed in with a genre that holds so dearly makes Bound like a really really intriguing movie to me. Yeah, I, I, again, Bill Pope. I can I can make an entire podcast on this guy. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, The Matrix, Spider Man Two. Like he has a style, and it's incredible. I, I think he's one of the one of my favorite DPs. I think he also shot Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. Um, the the guy's just a G. Like I, I, again, I was rewatching Spider Man Two, and I was rewatching The Matrix. Oh my god! <laughs> right. I thought action movies ever. Like I'm really oh, tossing easily. that out. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I, I love it that he worked with them. And, and someone else that worked with uh, the Wachowskis a lot, I, I, I think a lot, is uh, Joe Pantionello. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. He's like in pretty much, uh, he's in quite a few of their films. So I, I think that's that's a funny thing, too, because he's Cypher in The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cypher is like a big character in that movie. Right. Um, yeah. Any other word on Bound? Uh, no, uh, I I think this is a, a really interesting, great de- debut for these two filmmakers. And I hope that a lot more people check it out um, based on listening to this podcast, because it's, it flies pretty under the radar. But if you're looking for something new, fresh and edgy that came out in the 90s, this is definitely a movie for you. Now we are moving on to your movie, mm. RB3. Uh-oh. And that is... Speed Racer. <laughs> yeah. Speed uh, Racer. I believe, before we get into it, I believe there are a few videos defending this movie on YouTube from movie YouTubers. I, I, I want to give a shout out. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it Chris Chris Hartwell? Yeah, Chris Did Hartwell. Did he make a video? Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the, the Snow's No Channel. Video? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about... The conversation now about Speed Speed Racer versus the conversation when it was coming out, yeah, and well, how it's changed. Well, when it when it came out, you know, um, I was a young kid, so I wasn't really following reviews all that much. Um, but I generally knew what people were saying, and people were trashing this movie. I mean, this movie was getting bombastic. You know, it's silly. The tone is all over the place. It makes no sense. It's overly saturated, over CGI'd. Da, 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 this and that. And, um, you know, some of those criticisms are valid. I don't think a lot of them are, but I think uh, now in 2020, um, there's been a lot of like revisiting of Speed Racer and um, and appreciating its uniqueness, especially for a blockbuster, big, um, giant piece of piece of filmmaking and especially for um, an anime adaptation. Right. Because this is one of the few um, anime adaptations that's ever been made. Live action anime um adaptations has been made and even though it wasn't like the biggest financial hit ever um it was it did kind of um set the set a rhythm and a pace for you know what what to be was there to be expected with um these adaptations it's kind of like high technology glossy um high cgi um methods of adapting mangas and 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 animes kind of uh largely came from speed racer um at least that's where where i'm going to contribute it to and I think, moreover, I think 
the originality of it, even though I think a lot of people criticized the tone and all that stuff when it first came out. Um, I think the, um, you know, people criticized that when it first came out. I think the fact that it, it, it does stand out and it does have an original voice and it does have a tone that's unique to itself makes it all the more compelling. Yeah. I, I mean, you hit the nail on something that I've been avoiding so far just because we haven't talked about the matrix, but uh, people talk to me a lot, especially during the Schmoes days when I was doing my anime thing. And mm. People knew I was an anime fa fan. And I mean, obviously, as you can see, I'm still an anime fan. And yeah. I, 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 I've been ranting about My Hero Academia's last episode for the past week. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was incredible. And it brought me to my knees like it was baffling. I, I love anime. I've been I've loved anime for a long time. And, and I think that's my biggest connection with the Wachowskis. Mm. Um, is that we are, we see eye to eye in anime, we're anime fans, and, and they wanted to make anime live action, and that was The Matrix. Mm -hmm. The Matrix is an anime movie, like a lot of people don't realize it. It's not based on a manga, uh, and it's not based on a pre-existing anime, but it's a, it's a culmination of a mixture of a lot of anime, of Ghost in the Shell, um, a little bit of Blade Runner, but, mm -hmm. but it's still that same aesthetic uh, and that same ideology uh, that they wanted to establish. And I think it's funny because then they all went on to make Speed Racer, which is, again, anime. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that idea of like like what you said, RB3, what does that mean? What is what is anime in live action mean? And it's it's a it's a really it's an actual really dense thing and I can get into it. I've like written stuff about it mm -hmm. uh, and people have asked me about it because it's really hard. Uh, is it the the spectacle and the amazing animation and the art that you can create with CGI, or or is it the themes, the philosophies? Is it a mixture of both? How do you balance it? It's really difficult, and I think that's why people had a great time destroying Speed Racer oh, <laughs> and, sure. and just really stepping all over it because they felt like if you can't find that perfect balance, then you haven't made a good Hollywood film because again, it's two different art styles. Of storytelling, uh, uh, of story structure, of everything, of tone, like anime is different. Like I'm telling you, it's different. Uh, mm -hmm. As someone who watches quite a bit, uh, and it's it's that idea of like, how do you do this? Uh, but but I feel like, am I the only one who thinks the conversation has changed a little bit around oh, this film? Yeah, hundred percent changed. I think a lot a lot to do with people like Chris Hartwell, people like William Bibiani, um, and if I'm not mistaken, Mark and Draco too recently. Um, have all said positive things about Speed Racer. Um, in Hector Navarro as well. Shout out to Hector Navarro. Adam, um, yeah, yeah. Adam, Adam Halavik. Uh, they've all said really uh, positive things about Speed Racer recently. That I think has shifted the conversation to be more favorable to us, which I love. I think that's that's beautiful because uh, honestly, you know, you know, it to me what Speed Racer succeeds is that it does the high CGI thing and it does the you know big effects and big spectacle thing um but it feels rich and it doesn't feel like empty um to some extent and i know it's a lot of cars flipping around and colors going back and forth but i think that just adds to the tone and adds to the flavor and the, and the flair that this movie um kind of adopted that a lot of movies effort after it's kind of adopted um and I think it, it you know, much like The Matrix, it plays into that traditional like hero's journey story of somebody denying, um, denying the journey and then having to overcome that and, and you know, 
come into their own and 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 be, become the hero that they're destined to be. Um, I think it has a lot of that that you see in the Matrix, but it does it in a more kid friendly way. Um, I think you know where the way that a lot of people, I'm sure the way that you probably feel about Phantom Menace is probably the same way I feel about uh, Speed Racer and the fact that like it's something that you watch as a kid and or watch as a younger person and you forgive a lot of the goofiness because it kind of falls right in line with your sensibilities. But, you know, when you look at it from today's perspective, there actually is a lot of good that you can mine at it out of it as an adult too. So. Absolutely. I, I notoriously still love the Phantom Menace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I've said it in like all the videos, so I don't mm -hmm. think that's anything new. Um, but yeah, it, it's really fascinating because I feel like, I think people are looking at films a little differently now. Uh, I might be wrong. Then I mean, then again, I've loved a lot of movies that people, you know, think I'm crazy for. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I'm wrong. But but I think people look at movies now with the idea of audience, with the idea of of branding and messaging, mm -hmm. uh, and then the idea of a word that I don't know what you think of this RB three, a word that's been thrown around a lot that people are starting to turn on because over the past few years people have like overused it and by people i mean critics uh and i've been i've been guilty of this but but i've been trying to stay away from it and that's the word fun mm -hmm. it's a fun film we heard that a lot for movies that like aquaman uh movies like venom movies that i think are two different movies in quality in my opinion right um it, it, what do you think of that idea of the idea of just just over the top fun and and it's everything else sort of becomes irrelevant due to the adventure that you're kind of going on right um i i personally well for me for me in general um you know fun 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 is one of those words that you know it it it, it got over i think it got overused because i think a lot of times um even now fun has kind of become like the safe word for critics to say bad um, and, um, you know, and I think it's kind of unfortunate because I think a movie like Speed Racer, um, is the perfect definition of a fun movie. Um, it is kind of like, it does have like this over sensationalized hyperkinetic, um, energy that you can't really find somewhere else is, is, is vibrant, is lively, um, and like, you know, like I said, it has it has a tone and it has a voice. And I think that to me is what makes this movie fun. I think the fact that like it has this kind of like over the top, um, you know, kind of kind of construction when it comes to um, when it comes to um, the family. Right. The family aspect. We have like a comedic actor like John Goodman and then a serious actor who's playing um, the main character, Speed Racer. Um, like Amelia Hirsch, like Amelia, Amelia, Amelia Hirsch, is that his name? Um, um, but it has kind of like, it feels like varying tones for various things. And there are even moments where it kind of does become like a, almost like a karate movie with, you know, the idea of like racer X, like he's breaking into these houses and, and doing all these and, and, and sabotaging the races and everything like that. Um, and, and they have like these martial arts fights that you see so traditionally in like the matrix and everything like that. Um, it does feel like it, 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 it does encompass a lot of things, a lot of fun elements that we would typically associate with genres like karate movies, like 
cartoons, like anime, it kind of embodies the more bright, lively elements instead of like the darker philosophical themes that we're used to seeing from the Ruchowskis. And I think that's what makes it even bolder and more brilliant. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, I just want to note like the editing in this movie, right? Like there's so many scenes in this movie that they took like the maximum amount of risk, like to make it highly entertaining and weird and fun. To, I think immediately to one scene where like all of them are racing on the, on the track and, um, and it would just cut and like, as they're racing, it would like, it will cut to them inside. It'll cut to each racer inside of the car. It will go into a brief, like 30, 45 second mini story of how they got to this point in the race and how they got paid off by like the main person. And then, and then it goes back into the race and shows them trying to sabotage our main character. And that to me is such a brilliant narrative structure. And that's just a mini example of like how many different risks they're taking throughout this movie. Um, so just or everything about it, I just, I just deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate uh, on all levels. Absolutely. Um, uh, also, now, I'm sorry, oh, one, one more shout out to Patrick Willems. He also, I, now I'm thinking about it. I think he, a couple years ago, he had a tweet where he said, uh, this is the 10-year anniversary of Speed Racer. And, you know, this is kind of an unbelievable masterpiece and nobody will believe it. And I think that is what initially got the ball rolling on a lot of people looking, re- taking another look at um, at Speed Racer 2. So salute to Patrick Williams. Patrick H. Williams. I love that guy. Uh, I forgot. He's a big Wachowski guy. He, he, he loves the Wachowskis. I think he loves all their movies. Mm. Uh, and he talks about The Matrix a lot. Um and and he's one of my favorite channels, and a lot of what he says is great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Emil Hirsch, by the way. Emil, Emil Hirsch. Hirsch, yeah, Emil Hirsch, yeah. Um, Cloud Atlas. Ooh, talk about a movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this movie was another movie that was kind of centered in controversy, mm-hmm. to say the least. A lot of controversy. Uh, and it it wanted to say a lot. RB3. I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. <laughs> mm. It just really wanted to say a lot and it wanted to do it in a unique way. But it's also based on, I believe, a, a, a novel, a graphic novel or a novel? Uh, a novel. Yeah. OK. And you've read this, right? Yeah, I read it back. I read it back in the day, back when the movie uh, was first coming out in 2012. Talk to me about this because you've mentioned this one a lot. Yeah, I've, I mentioned it on the show, particularly the novel. The novel makes it funny because this the 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 idea of the the idea of the story is that it takes place across multiple different generations, across multiple different times, and how are these stories all connected to each other, right? Um, so a lot of the story takes place in the future, and in the book, um, in the book Cloud Atlas, they refer to movies not as movies but as Disney's. Or Disney's. So I mentioned that before on this podcast. Um, but over, but overall, the overall the overall kind of conception of this movie because it's so weird and so out there. Um, it's the idea of taking six individual souls, right? Somebody from um, eighteen, I believe, eighteen forty nine or something like that, um, and uh, contem- and and then transports it to contemporary times where there's a where there's uh, a character who's like an environmentalist trying to take down this nuclear power plant company. Um, you know, and then there's the idea of like the future, right? Where there's like a, a clone and, and Korea who's like trying to rebel and, and, and escape. And it, it deals with all of these really, uh, out there, um, 
ideas that you never really that you've never really seen before. Um, so I think well, that you have seen before, but it it, it it ties them all together through this interwoven story where um, Halle Berry, Tom Hanks, um, if I'm not mistaken, Hugo Weaving, and a lot of actors play uh, six different characters in six different timelines um, that all kind of correlate and, and relate to each other and how it goes to like this deeper philosophical theme of, you know, connectivity and uh, souls and, you know, um, how are we all related to each other? Um, so it's, it's really deep. It's really out there. Um, it takes a lot to kind of even get into this movie, honestly. Um, it's a three out. It's almost three hours long. I believe it's like two hours and 50 minutes. Um, so it, it kind of takes a lot to understand. Um, some criticisms around it is that Tom Hanks is playing a, uh, uh, you know, he's, 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 he's playing like, he's playing different parts. I mean, I, I, one of, one of, one of the things that is, uh, one of the things that's interesting about it is that he, that they, they pl- these actors are playing different, different people, some of different backgrounds, some of as even like different races. Um, but they're all being played by the same actor as if there's like a connectivity, like a soul to it. So there, you know, have been some kind of like accusations about, you know, is there black face, brown face, like red face, because I believe Halle Berry, Halle Berry's character um, also plays like a, a, an Indian person or something like that. So it kind of, it kind of does explore a lot of, a lot of these different kind of stories. But I think in the context of like the book and the deeper meaning of the film, I kind of don't think that is a particular like pro- problem given what the story essentially is about. The, the the idea of like a transfer of soul like between time periods um so yeah it's out there it's a weird movie um i personally dig it though i dig the the deeper theme and the philosophy and it is like like any wachowski film is very it does have a distinct tone there is like a hint of like cynicism in there um there's one death that one of tom hanks characters uh is involved in. I don't want to spoil it in particular, but it's actually kind of really funny. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. Um, overall, I love Cloud. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously the movie is trying to say what a lot of movies and TVs have tried to say about the philosophy of, of your right connectivity of, of everyone is somehow connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's every soul is somehow connected to each other. Right. Uh, and we're part of this web of humanity that we end up destroying each other so much. But the irony is that we're all literally connected somehow um, through some sort of cosmic, um, crazy, you know, dimensional connection that makes us humans. Right. Uh, our soul, right? Our consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the fact that we all face the same issues. But our upbringing uh, 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 kind of destroys our our thought process, the way we view other people. We view them as other. And the irony is that we're all the same. Right. I've seen it done in a lot of shows. To be fair, Sensei is literally all about this. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, right. I'll talk about it when I get to Sensei uh, after the break. But 
it, it's something that's been seen quite a bit. It's it's all over anime, to be fair. Again, going back to anime, and I know it's based on the novel. Um, mm. But it's one of those ideas that has been, you know, it's ancient. It, it's really ancient. It's been it's been around forever. Uh, I believe um, Hinduism deals with it. Mm. Uh, I might I might be wrong. Sorry, Confucianism I, I believe deals with it as well. Right. Uh, here's my religious studies background, um, and 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 it's something that's been around for quite a while, and and it's it's really fascinating because it still spreads the message of humanity needing to come together and kind of putting down their swords in favor of coming together and reaching out to each other is kind of the theme and kind of the message that the Wachowskis want to send, uh, which I appreciate if I'm being honest. And I know a lot of people might roll their eyes at that, but I I, I still kind of appreciate I'm a sucker for that. Right. Um, but you're right. It, it is a long film to say one thing. <laughs> right, right, it's right. It's like, we get it. <laughs> right. We're all connected. Uh, so it, it, is a, it is a lot to get through. And I think uh, overall, it wasn't super successful, uh, but at least it, it had some really cool visuals as far as like a future uh, and how the future can look. And I thought that was neat. Yeah, there are interesting visuals. Um, the fu- the futuristic stuff, which is the, the one the one storyline that's set in Korea, it takes place. Um, I'm looking it up right now. I believe it takes place in 2144. And then the other segment um, that is set in like a post-apocalyptic Hawaii is set in 2023-21. Now, what's fascinating about this movie actually is that the Wachowskis actually co-directed it with another director, um, Tom Tom, um, Weicker, who is the director of uh, Run, Lola, Run. Um, So they kind of split up the segments accordingly. So the Wachowskis do... The past segment that is uh, does the 1849 segment where um, Halle Berry is like a slave and um, and Tom Hanks's character is like a uh, is like one of the people on on, on a slave ship. Um, and then the twin the 2144, like I said, is about the clone in Korea who's uh, vying for an escape. Um, and then the 2321 segment is also directed by the Wachowskis. And like I said, that's set in like a post-apocalyptic Hawaii kind of setting. Um, and then meanwhile, Tom um, Welker, he directed uh, this more present segment. So like the night, there's a segment that takes place in like 1936. Um, there's a segment that follows Halle Berry's. Wow. There's a segment that follows Halle Berry's character really closely. The 1973 storyline, that's the one I was talking about with the investigator who's trying to out like the power plant. Um, and the 2012 segment, which is personally my favorite segment of the movie, um, where Tom Hanks is playing like this publisher who is uh, a publisher and author. I can't really remember, but he's like this really arrogant, egotistical guy. And there's like a really funny. The, the, to me, that's the funniest segment out of out of out of the entire film. And I don't. I, I've seen the clip. Yeah. 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 It, it's exactly it's really about. funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like people clip it out just to show how funny it is. Yeah. 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 So I, there there are um it does it does involve a lot of different stories a lot of different storylines um to dissect and piece apart every single storyline individually um is kind of challenging um but yeah. I think. The, I think overall, I think there's an overall theme of, like you said, connectivity, connection, 
souls, all that kind of thing. But I think at the end of the day, there's also like a big um, theme about humanism too, and about uh, and about environmentalism, um, because the major there's a lot of these segments that take that do take place in like an environmental type setting, um, and how and how how uh, how is the human impact um, involving that, and um, you know and like I said, Hugh Grant is in this movie. Hugo Weaving from The Matrix um, is, is in these movies and is in this movie. And both of them both kind of play like the villainous characters in each of these roles. And it's fascinating because even while they're completely different stories of completely different conflicts and completely different characters, you do see a similar kind of story arc happening across all of these uh, different different storylines. So overall, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating piece of narrative. It's a great book. I, I'd recommend people want to read that book, check it out. Um, the book goes more into detail about a lot of these things than the movie does. Um, but then the movie is also a fascinating companion piece as well, because it diverts enough from the book to where there are enough changes to where you're like, oh, that's that's weird and interesting. But I I, I, I like where they're going with that. And it just makes it more streamlined and, and kind of hits the greater point uh, a little bit stronger. Uh, Alrighty, guys, after the break, we're going to be talking about Sensei and obviously Jupiter Ascending. So make sure you guys stick around. This ain't funny, so don't you dare laugh. With the four fifth divide you in half, you getting at me equals a club half. You do the math, take you out the equation. The following is a review for the new Hulu movie Big Time Adolescent starring Pete Davidson. Enjoy. But eventually, throughout the movie, the audience becomes aware that Pete Davidson's character is kind of using uh, Mo, I think is his name. No. And 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 it starts to become this weird relationship of like, wait a minute, this guy's using you. He's friends with you and he's cool with you, but he's kind of using you and you're you're letting him get away with that. You know, you should stand up for yourself and kind of move on from this relationship. What do you think of that? The two personalities kind of dueling at each other and, and Mo eventually coming to fruition and becoming himself. Um, I think it's really sweet. I, I don't necessarily Pete. Davison's character was using him. Zeke was using Mo a little bit, but since there was genuine love there, I ju I just think I think um, Pete Davidson's character Zeke is kind of like almost like a low key sociopath. He just kind of doesn't think about anything. He doesn't really care about anyone except for kind of seems like um, Mo's older sister that he still kind of has some attachment to. But who knows if that's an actual attachment to her or an actual attachment to like his youth. Come along, children. Now we're going to have a little music. What is up, guys? We are back talking about the Wachowskis. Uh, before we get into the rest of their, their films and the TV show they have on Netflix, we have to mention V for Vendetta, RV3, a film that they, I believe they wrote uh, and and that features Hugo Weaving, which again is kind of a, a staple in their filmography, uh, and it features a, a, a Wachowski's feel, if that makes sense, almost to the point that you might feel they directed the movie. Yeah, Barbie three. Yeah, I mean that's been a, a longstanding belief that they kind of ghost directed uh, a lot of this movie um, because, um, for one. The director of the actual film, I believe his James, his name is James um, McTiergio, or I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he was their second unit uh, or first unit, or I'm sorry, first assistant director 
um, on the Matrix, on a lot of their films, um, even including um, Star Wars Episode Two, Attack of the Clones. He was the first assistant director on that one. So this was kind of like his feature debut. And, um, you know, rumors, you know, speculation amongst the town is that, you know, Wachowskis were there on set helping helping give guidance or whatever. So um, which what that's to me, it makes sense, because when you look at the deeper themes of like what this movie's tackling, it is kind of tackling a lot of the similar themes that like Matrix is going into. Right. Like the idea of like um the idea of like this underground world that um, that that is like an unlocking of a deeper truth that is omnipresent throughout our real lives um, and seeing how they kind of use how they kind of adapt um, the, the the graphic novel that is based on, um, which I believe was um, written by Alan Moore and which that there. The, the original graphic novel dealt a lot with like British politics and dis- disillusionment with the British parliament. But this movie adaptation um, instead focuses more on like, uh, even though it still takes place in, in Great Britain, uh, it, it deals with more themes of like American politics and like the George Bush era of like, you know, um, disillusionment with like American kind of, kind of kind of kind of systems and and corporatisms and 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 war and all and all of that kind of stuff and suppression of media and everything like that too um so that that's what that's what this movie overall uh kind of embodies and you can kind of see that the idea of like natalie portman's character who's like this regular um woman who works who just so happens to work at a new station um gets kidnapped by this uh this dude wearing a mask and then he introduces her to this whole other kind of understanding of what uh, the government represents and what um, politics represents and kind of ends up flipping her in the same way that Neo does in the matrix. Right. He, she gets, she kind of gets red pilled in this movie. Um, so overall it's just, it's just a really, really fascinating piece to me. It's one of the better graphic novel adaptations I think we've ever seen. Um, and deals with so many interesting ideas of, uh, like I said, politics, uh, authoritarianism, um, the deceit between and the disconnection between the people and the government. I just think it's really interesting in a lot of those ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we had to mention that when we talk about the Wachowskis, just because even if there's screenplay alone, that's worth it. Just talking about that, considering it's pretty well done mm-hmm. uh, and it worked. I, I think this movie came out, what was it, 2006? Uh, Is that right? 2000, yeah, I think 2005 or 2006, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think yeah. So, yeah, very, very much ahead of its time, and, and, it, and it worked really well. Uh, but now we've reached a time to hit the most, I don't know, I, I think it's the most notorious of the most notorious Wachowskis. And that is your favorite, <laughs> Jupiter Ascending. Hey! <laughs> Yeah, uh, starring Shannon Tatum as a space elf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, talk to me about this one, man. This one, this one's tough as a Wachowski fan to get behind. Now, I actually remember um, watching um, this movie um, when it first came out in theaters um, in 3D, IMAX 3D, um, because, like I said, I was a Wachowski fan, big fan of Cloud Atlas, big fan of matrix and speed racer so i was going into this hype despite the reviews 
Um, and this movie is like genuinely bonkers. Um, there is a dude who's like a giant lizard who's like talking to um, Eddie Redmayne, like you know. And this is before Eddie Redmayne had an Oscars. Oscar winner Eddie Redmayne. Put some yeah. respect on that name. Yeah. Well, it's funny because Jupiter Ascending came out in February 2015, which uh, the the year of 2014 was the year of the Theory of Everything. So as the Oscars are rolling out, um, and he had just came off of a fresh Oscar win and doing all this Oscar campaigning for the theory of everything, um, Jupiter Sending was also coming out. And even the marketing, the marketing campaign of Jupiter Sending actually kind of held a lot, kind of drew back and kind of uh, 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 hid a lot of Eddie Redman's performance in this for the fact of um, being able to, for him to have a better sell for Oscars. Cause you know, Oh yeah. Because yeah, of course that makes sense. Cause the same thing with, with Norbit, um, you know, when, when Norbit came out, it was the same, same time as dream girls was supposed to be doing the, the Oscar campaigning and Eddie Murphy actually in the blues in the Oscar because of the marketing in Norbit. Um, but you know, uh, in this case, they actually hit the performance a lot in the trailers to make, but they still, made it clear that he's in the movie so then it could sell the fact that like Oscar winner Eddie Redmayne is in is in is in this movie. Um so overall it's a very out there movie. There's a scene where me, me uh where Mila Kulis go they, they go to like a house and then she's Yeah Mila, Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis, yeah and then she's like the queen of Kunis. Kunis? Kunis. Kunis. Yeah. yeah. Big fan of that 70s show by the way. That's one of my favorite shows of all time. First show I've ever binged in my entire life. Um, but there's a scene she goes to a house and then she's like the queen of bees, and then and then do and one of the dudes is like, yeah, you know, you're you're special if the bees love you, and then she gets like carried off by these bees, and it's so weird. Like, um, everything about this movie is just weird. Like, after a while, you're just kind of like watching it and you're like, uh, like I, I don't know. Um the, the, hey man, when the bees show you love, you know it's real, man. Yeah, shout out to the bees. Shout out to the bees. Um, yeah, I don't. It's it's tough because even though I watched this movie on in theaters and several times on home video, um, I still have kind of a not clear understanding of what the plot is, um, nor if there's a deeper meaning <laughs> to even speak of about it. Um, I don't know if there's like a theme. Uh, what 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 the 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 clearest thing I'm able to extrapolate from this movie is that it it kind of is like a sci-fi Cinderella story uh, because Mila Kulis character is like this uh, is she's literally a janitor in the same way that you know Cinderella was and she gets carried off into this whimsical world of um, of these aliens and finds out she's like the queen of this planet and she's is forced to marry like Eddie Redmayne, but they're like related somehow. And there's, I don't know, again, plot. I don't really, I don't, I, I've always had a hard time following, but the visuals of this movie are actually incredible. Um, and I think that's the coolest thing. There's, there's, there's the concept of like how these aliens are kind of in the real world, but they hide from the real world because all, all of the things they do, uh, are just like explained away as like some sort of like uh, 
real world event, but it's really just aliens fighting each other. Like they have a whole f- a fight, and I think it's like the downtown downtown LA skyline or whatever. And then they're fighting like around these buildings, and then like th- and Channing Tatum's like skating on the buildings with like Mila Kunis on 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 his back. And then like they cut to like the wide shot, but it's like entirely invisible. But then you go back into the action, and it's like everything's happening. So it's really cool. It's it's, it's out there. It's weird. I love it. Very Doctor Strange. Yeah, very style. Exactly. Very Doctor Strange-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jupiter ascending. Woo. <laughs> it's it's uh, uh obviously. So I, I this might be wrong. This is coming off here off the top of my head. Mm. I think Eddie Redmayne won the Oscar and the Razzie the same year for worst actor and best actor. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a fun fact that Mm -hmm. I might be making up. No, I mean, Uh, but I think that's right. I I literally wouldn't doubt it. He gave one of the worst performances I've ever seen in a major motion picture in this movie. Um, And And then he gave one of the best performances in a motion picture with the fear of everything. And then he was also nominated for the Danish girl. I believe the next, that, that, that next year year too. So yeah, he, he, that's right. He had his hits, but it's, 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 this is an out there movie for sure. But if there's one thing you, you, you have to applaud in this film is the, uh, overwhelming visual uh technical achievement that they that they that they took that they did that they did for this movie um that's the cool you talked yeah i'm sorry no go ahead no i was just saying um they they i believe if i'm not mistaken they filmed a lot of this movie in um 2013 and um i believe they spent like over a year in post-production so the CGI in it's like really, really crisp, and it has you could tell like where the money was spent because all the effects look really, really cool and interesting and bombastic. Yeah, and you talked about the themes of this movie. I, I think it's like right there. It's it's the hero's journey. It's the idea of like discovering that you're not some worthless human being with nothing to live for. You're you actually are this majestic queen of this race of people who worship you and you're amazing mm-hmm. um you know the idea of matrix um, not matrix of neo realizing that he's like oh you're the one you're not just some you know boring hacker who's kind of down on his life and just stuck in the monotony of his life you are the chosen one you're gonna save us all it's luke skywalker mm-hmm. your dad is the great hero anakin skywalker who has all this power you have all this power now come save us uh, from the endless war, it, it, it's it's the classical hero's journey of discovering that you are much more powerful than you thought you were, kind of thing. That that is much more targeted towards kids. One hundred percent. And yeah, so I mean, overall, I what what I find, well, I kind of always taken away from this movie is that I think personally, if this movie was called Star Wars: Jupiter Ascending. It probably would have had like a ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I think that's probably what I think. I mean, I'm being, I'm being, I'm being honest, man. Because I think honestly, there's not like I think. I think in the same way that the Last Jedi had a lot of praise for taking risk and all that kind of stuff. I think this movie took a lot of risk. It took a lot of bad risk, but it did take risk. And I think that the bad forty percent of the Last Jedi, that's like the Canto bite and the and the and the mom jokes and and all that stuff. I think it's like twenty percent. Yeah, yeah, thirty, thirty. We'll, we'll set out thirty. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I think if you take that 
that kind of tone is what this movie is just fully in its entirety. Um, so that's kind of, that's, that's always what I've kind of derived from it. I, I always appreciate original science fiction. Um, Jupiter sending is one of those. And even if it's bad, I, I, I still always appreciate it. Jupiter sending is one. There's, there's one recently too, that, that, um, that flopped really bad. That was like a big budget. Uh, Oh, it's the Dane DeHaan. Carry yeah, on, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot what that's called. Based on the French graphic novel. Exactly, 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 exactly. But yeah, I, I can't believe I can't remember the name. I'll look it up. Thanks so bad. But yeah, that's that 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 for sure is uh one of those Jupiter Sending is one of those like weird off-kilter sci-fi movies that kind of run under the radar because of bad reviews. But I think you know, if people are interested in some good fantasy sci-fi, it's it's worth at least checking out. Uh, Valerian and the City of there it a Thousand is. Planets. There it is. There it is. Also, a movie. I mean, it, I enjoyed it, it. After Earth. After Earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, that one's more bad, though. I mean, popped really bad. Yeah, yeah. Sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Big budget. That one looks cheap. I don't like that. I don't like After Earth because that one looks cheap. You know what I mean? Like at least with like Jupiter sending and Valerian, like they look like they have budgets and they kind of have like this arseful thing to it. Um, After Earth just kind of looked like a well, like M. Night Shyamalan just pointing a camera at Will Smith or Jaden Smith in the forest and just shooting. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's, a, it's a testament to the idea of original sci-fi movies kind of don't work. And that's why studios invest all this money in IP and owning IP so that they can have a pre-existing uh, well-known or semi-well-known IP that they can make a big budget and they can justify that big budget Mm -hmm. because it's so hard to justify it when you're like oh it's based on this really small indie novel Mm -hmm. that like five people have read Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's kind of hard for studio executives to be like okay we're gonna give you 300 million dollars right uh versus a star wars that has that huge ip and that huge lineage of generations of success right um it's hard. It's really hard to do a big budget sci-fi, which is why, I mean, someone like a Lee Winnell, for example, uh, making Upgrade for like $10 uh, yeah. and, and making that a really interesting sci-fi movie mm-hmm. is a cool example because it's really hard to do, to be fair. I, I, I think a lot of people overlook uh, the sci-fi genre when it comes to budget. Mm-hmm. They think it's like, oh, just make it for cheap. Make it for like $5. And you're like, you can do that with horror, not with sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's harder to do with sci-fi. So again, it's, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, I so- do think speaking of indie sci-fi though, I do want to shout out one quick indie sci-fi movie that has nothing to do with the Wachowskis, but um, Cody Hall actually told me about this movie a couple years ago and um, and it's called Coherence. Have you heard of it? Coherent. Oh. Yeah, that's literally a movie that I think was shot for like $300 or something like that. But it's a brilliant sci-fi movie. I, it pretty much all where? Um, I don't know where. I think it might be sh- I think I found it on Hulu. Um, but it the okay. basic it basically takes place inside of one house and it's like the idea of like these people having like uh, a family dinner. Um, or not a family dinner, like a, like these friends having like a, a gathering or whatever. And then like um but then like as they as each one of them leaves the house, it's like a different version of them comes back. Like it's the same person, but it's like a different version. Um, and it deals with this like huge ideas of like 
wormholes and and um and dimensions and all this weird stuff but it all takes place within like this one neighborhood and you could clearly tell it was shot like super amateurly so if that if that Bro. there's one sci-fi movie that 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 was shot for like ten dollars that's the one you want to watch for sure i'm sold man you know yeah. me i'm i'm a dimensional expert <laughs> i've studied dimensional travel yeah which, which uh, is why i'm excited for, that's, that's why i'm excited that's why I'm excited for our Matrix episode because there's a lot of yeah. um, interweavings that we could talk about there. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, yeah. I'll check it out, man, for sure. And, and again, it's a testament to it's hard making these big budget sci-fi movies that are original. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we've come to Netflix, one of their first original shows, and that is Sensei. I believe it's one of the first uh I, I hope i'm right saying that i know house of cards is up there house of um, cards orange is the new black and then um they had another like british show but this was one of the this was definitely one of the early ones for sure yeah it came out like a few months after house of cards i believe i think house of cards came out like in august and this came out like in uh winter mm-hmm. um and i immediately was like i'm going to watch that show just based off the, the fact that I had Netflix, I just got it because of House of Cards. And I've said that story a million times that I actually got Netflix because of House of Cards. I had the free trial thing and I was like, you know what? I'm keeping it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I kept it. And, and Sensei was one of the ones that I was like, oh, I'll watch that. Why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be hard for me to do this based off memory, but I'm going to try my best because uh, I haven't seen it since it aired. But essentially the story is about different people in different parts of the world discovering that they are all connected to uh, eight different people or seven different people all around the world from different parts of the world. Now, what that means is that at any point in time, I can tap into any of the skills that they happen to have. Uh, There's a Korean girl who's a martial arts expert, expert, and I, you know, if I'm getting gang tackled by some guys, I can tap into her uh, martial arts background because it's in my head because we're connected, uh, and I can fight off all these gangsters. Or if I'm, I can tap into this German scientist or this, you know, Eastern European scientist, and I can figure out, you know, how to get away or how to figure out a formula. Or it's it's a really interesting concept, which is what sold me to watch the show. Um, But at the end of the day, the theme is still the same as kind of the Cloud Atlas theme of the idea of that we're all connected, even if we're living in different countries, by different races, with different upbringings and different religions, we all happen to be connected. Uh, And that's the idea of breaking down the barriers of uh, racism, of, you know, all these thoughts that people have against other people around the world. And the idea of like, oh, no, I happen to con- be connected to that guy. And he's really cool. <laughs> uh, this guy from India is cool or this girl from India is cool. And this guy from Africa is dope. Uh, so your preconceived notions of uh, what you think of those pe- people beforehand changes when you realize you're actually uh, cosmically connected to them. Yeah. Um, and it's really it, it, it's weird. It's a weird show. Um but it's fascinating. Honestly, what sold me was the idea of the international vibe mm-hmm. kind of sold me too. 
Yeah. Uh, they shoot on location, which costs a lot of money, and Netflix wanted to spend that money. Um, and you can kind of pick your favorite as far as like what storyline is your favorite. And there's this, uh, you know, episode by episode one, you focus on one guy, you focus on another guy, you focus on another girl and, and you get the background of their story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you can kind of pick your favorite. My favorite was like the German gangster guy. He was like a gangster, like shooting up people and he was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I can't go without saying that my favorite, everyone's favorite scene in this show is, is when they sing a song in karaoke at the exact same time. And this is before they know that they're connected. Uh, so they're all singing the same song. Someone's singing it in the car, someone's singing it in the room, someone's singing it in karaoke, someone's singing it in the shower. And, and they all are singing the same song. And it's really well cut and edited. Uh, and it's really well done in the sense of like, it feels like this global sing-along where everyone is speaking the same language and singing the same language, uh, even if they have heavy accents. I think the German guy is the one doing it in karaoke, and he has a huge German accent while singing it. Mm. Uh, and I forget the name of the song, and I'm going to look it up right now as I hear your thoughts on the show, RB3. Yeah, I've, um, I'm really only familiar with the first uh, couple episodes. Uh, I watched them like you when they first aired. Um, I'm more familiar with like the controversy around like the cancellation of the show. I know it had. Yeah. Um, I know it had a huge, huge fan base that were really upset um, that Netflix canceled it. Um, and you know, some people even to this day um, say that it was canceled because it was, you know, because Netflix wasn't, um, you know, as attuned to uh, LGBTQ voices. Um, this is a show that, um, at least from the outside looking in, it appears to. Um, include a lot of themes of, you know, LGBTQ representation, kind of like the idea of like trans, um, trans ideology going from a man's body to a woman's body, vice versa. Um, all those different kind of themes are just intersectionality in general. Um, so I appreciate, and obviously the Wachowskis, as we mentioned before, they embody a lot of that through their um, film, through their through their filmmaking, and through who they are as actual human beings. Um, so it's interesting to see there, um, uh, seeing the, them being able to translate that onto a TV show, like a Netflix show like that. But then now, you know, after this cancellation, seeing how people reacted to it, uh, it is unfortunate to see it get canceled. Uh, but you know, I, 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 I still want to get into it. It's still on Netflix. I still, if you haven't seen it yet, you know, I, I'd recommend checking it out, even though I haven't, but they did, if I'm not mistaken, they did like a movie to kind of wrap things up uh, too, so. Yeah, they they did because of the outcry of, of fans who were who were pretty upset about it. And, and you're right, RB3, that, that was an, an idea going in that this was one of the first shows that really heavily had characters of, of, of LGBT background and, and really had that as part of the story. Um, and, and it did it in a way that felt you know, done right because it's done by the Wachowskis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, but at the same time, I have to, this is pre pre Netflix where Netflix isn't just throwing $300 million to any filmmaker. This was right. Netflix when they were like figuring out what they were mm-hmm. uh, w- with original TV shows. And again, I'll say it again, the budget in this show was enormous, like humongous. They mm-hmm. shut down entire cities 
with huge crowds. Like it, it was, it blew my mind. That's again, that's one of the reasons why I tuned in was because I was like, oh damn, that looks crazy. Mm-hmm. Some of the shots they would get, I was like, that is not cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has to be one of the reasons too why they shut it down and why they, you know, canceled the show because they were like, well, not enough people watched. I guess we don't want to spend that much money versus now Netflix is much more, they feel a little bit more tuned to the audience and what audiences want. Yeah. And how so, much uh, the song is, uh, go ahead. Oh no, just in how much they're willing to spend on things. They're not going to throw yes. as much at, at a show like that. I don't think. Uh, Pleasant blue. Uh, what's going on? The one that goes, hey, what's going on that one uh that's everyone singing at the same time and i can't lie as i was watching the scene i was like this is kind of weird this is kind of cheesy this is kind of bad and i was like this is kind of amazing <laughs> like I, I started having all these thoughts because they sang the whole damn song mm-hmm. um and i i slowly was like oh man this is beautiful jeez I, oh i felt it uh and by the end of it i was like really like feeling it uh so shout out to that scene that everyone who's a sensate fan knows uh as as what kind of got you hooked on the show so uh but yeah the wachowskis they are fascinating directors Mm -hmm. uh, have a lot to say use every tool they have at their advantage and obviously we're going to talk about the matrix but as of what they have now as far as films, obviously we know they're making the next Matrix, Matrix Four, which is exciting. Uh, but again, guys, make sure you guys stick around on this channel because we are gonna be talking about the Matrix trilogy, uh, mm-hmm. all three movies, um, mm-hmm. especially one, but all three movies for sure. And uh, yeah, RB three. Any final words on the Wachowskis? Um, no, I'm happy. I'm happy that we got to talk about the Wachowskis. I'm happy that we got to mention some of my favorite movies, like. Um, Speed Racer, like V for Vendetta, um, even the underrated gems like Cloud Atlas and, um, excuse me, like Cloud Atlas and um, and like Jupiter Ascending, I think are, are, are interesting conversation pieces. And of course, Bound is representation to, Bound has a really strong presence and representation and a really cool noir movie too. And plus, you know, this is another example of us uh, celebrating women filmmakers um too that you know we could have we could have done this in march honestly because oh, yeah. they are female filmmakers and um and i be- if i'm not mistaken this might be our first time covering like a lgbtq uh queer uh director or topic um obviously we talked about movies like moonlight and a lot of other um stuff like that but th- i think this is our first time um talking about uh filmmakers who have transitioned and are outwardly LGBTQ too. So it's, it's, it's really awesome. Absolutely. Again, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, you can find me on my personal Instagram and Twitter at Squad Leader Race. You can find me at Director RB3. And again, you can follow us on all the social medias at First Cut TML. So make sure you guys do that and subscribe to this channel. Uh, again, that's the best way that you can show that you enjoyed this episode. And leave a comment down below. What do you think of the Wachowskis outside of the Matrix and their films outside of there? I know a lot of people have thoughts on that. So I want to hear your thoughts. Make sure to comment down below. And for the Meaning of Podcast, I'm Andres. This is RB3. And we're peace out. Peace out, guys. Peace out.